Welcome to episode 565 with my guest, Anne Moss Rogers. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com. It's also the social media handle you can follow us at. Uh, I was in one of my support groups uh, this week, and two topics came up unrelated seemingly to each other. One topic was uh, perfectionism, and the other topic in another meeting was leading a double life. And as I was thinking about both of these things, I realized, you know, they really are connected in in a certain way because the the perfectionism i believe robs us of finding out who we authentically are you know perfectionism there's nothing perfectionism can't destroy you know i've a friend was talking about getting a promotion and just being filled with anxiety and fear of being called a fraud i was like it is amazing how perfectionism can take such great opportunities in our lives and turn it into dread and horror. And, you know, is any of that anxiety good? I, I think there's a, a, a small part of anxiety that's good that kind of motivates us, but I think most of it just erodes our authenticity because we're we're coming from a place of fear rather than openness and curiosity and excitement. And in many ways, I think when we find ourselves leading a double life, usually around an addiction, um, you know, we're hiding something that we're afraid of being judged for. Um, you know, clearly it robs us of finding out who we are authentically. But I think what stands in the way of that is the fear of getting vulnerable, the fear of being judged, the fear that our true self, warts and all, isn't enough or is too much for people to learn to deal with. And for people who were raised in households that are judgmental or where there was conditional love based on you know performance and achievement, it can be really hard to not take our feelings and lead a double life, finding a way to express them. Um, and you just, we miss out when we lead a double life, not having our pain witnessed, not having someone hug you while you cry on their shoulder, not feeling seen and felt. And in in my experience and opinion, people who are consistently emotionally connected to a support network tend to not lead double lives, or at least their double life begins to go away as they become more and more comfortable with who they are. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Amelia. That's so good. About her borderline personality disorder, she writes, it's like you are both Anna, Anna Karenina and the train. Fuck, do I love it when you guys have a good struggle in a sentence. Thank you for that. 
Uh, Ugly Duckling writes about her self-harm. It feels like self-care. A snapshot from her life. My mom told me that she hated working in the children's metal ward because she was annoyed that they were whiners. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. A woman who calls herself underwater uh, writes about her anxiety. She, she says, it feels like being waterboarded. Last night, I worried I had head lice. I felt nauseous from the fear and kept going around and around on this torture wheel in my head of reassurance and doubt obsessing over it. I checked every inch of my bedding, my hats, and pulled my hair out. I'm so exhausted. Isn't it amazing the way, I don't know, my guess is that that's our brain's way of distracting us from something we've, we've buried. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Cranky Pants. And uh, she writes, I want to know how you've handled the things you aren't proud of. I know that as humans, we all make mistakes, and I have a really hard time cutting myself some slack. Recently, I punched an older man in the face because he was following around my friend who recently turned 21. He wouldn't listen when I told him to back off. So I swung, and he hit me back. Anyways, I am not recovering well. I feel depressed and stupid. That's such a great question, and I'm sorry that you're feeling depressed and stupid. And not going into a shame spiral when we make mistakes or hurt people's feelings or fuck up or, you know, whatever it is that that we do is really, really hard. And that's been one of the biggest challenges for me in uh, recovery and going to therapy and all that other stuff. And what I try to do today is, if an apology is necessary, regardless of whether that person was at fault in some way, if if, if I did something, you know, let's say somebody cuts in front of me rudely in line at the grocery store, and I call them a fucking asshole, I will apologize or hopefully apologize to them for calling them that because them cutting in line in front of me doesn't warrant me saying that, I can think, boy, that person's an asshole, or say, you know, would you mind not cutting in front of me in line? That I wouldn't need to apologize for. So that's what I try to do today, is if I'm out of line about something, I try to apologize. The other thing I try to do is to not shame myself for it. Instead, make a note. What was it that that irked me. And in the future, if this happens again, how can I handle it better? How can I express myself in a way that's healthy? Uh, so that's what I, that's what I try to do, but it's, it's a very imperfect process, but it's an opportunity to practice self-love and self-compassion while also growing. Self-compassion and, and, um, shame, uh, it, it's, You can't have both at the same time, but you can have self-compassion and growth at the same time. I think we believe that, uh, you know, if we're not shaming ourselves, we're undisciplined and we're not going to get better. But I don't know anybody who's ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be. And speaking of shame, this is from the body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, backslash. And uh, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, when I'm in a ruminative 
ruminative state about my body, I dislike almost everything. The parts of me that, in my frame of mind, quote, invited sexual trauma, unquote, and somewhat punished are somewhat punished, but also kind of glorified, depending on my environment. They're the things I can put on display when I'm craving outside attention just to feel adequately attractive. Yet they are the parts that I want to alter the most when I've been triggered. The parts of my body that I convince myself are either too much or not enough in some arbitrary way become even more exaggerated when I look in the mirror and magnified in full when I loiter. For me, I focus on my skin, my nose, my boobs, and my waist almost every time. When I'm alone, as well as when I feel safe in my body and environment, I tend to quote, like, unquote, everything about my body. And I appreciate the features that distinguish my outer appearance from the current mainstream ideals of physical beauty. When I'm at my best, when I'm compassionate and inventive and resilient, when I'm seeing the bigger picture and when I'm in the company of the few people with whom I can be almost caustically authentic, I feel beautiful inside and out. Or I'm not preoccupied with my outer appearance at all. Fuck do I love that. Fuck do I love that. Thank you for that. This is also from the body shame survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself What's the Big Deal? And he writes, I hate that I have a little more fat than other males and my nipples are big. I hate when people would give a titty twister and I feel like it was always because I have, quote, bitch tits. Even when I've been healthy and in the gym, I still have big nipples. And the last girl I felt super comfortable with and considered a girlfriend and we were, quote, dating, she was really just getting back at her living boyfriend who she found out was doing male sex work with, uh, boss with boss of his Uh, she just wanted to get her rocks off for a couple of months during the pandemic being that this was unprecedented times and dating apps putting hundreds of people at your fingertips i found out about two months in the first time we went to the beach she flatly said you have big nipples we were at key west and i just walked back from the bar to the sand with my shirt off with drinks for her and her sister and that was the first thing she said to me Clearly, I have a lot of other things I need to work through after just thinking all that through. (laughs) Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I think she's a keeper. I think she's a keeper. This is from uh, the psych ward experiences uh, filled out by Billy. Uh, and she's in her 20s. And she was hospitalized for undiagnosed bipolar and PTSD. And uh, she writes, this was my third hospitalization. I was extremely depressed. I hadn't gotten out of bed except to get more alcohol and lost 20 pounds in just over a week. When I first entered the ward, there was an older woman, Maggie, who was seemingly everywhere at once. She was extremely manic, and I was honestly terrified of her. I don't think she slept more than a few hours my whole stay. Anyway, I spent several days in bed, but dragging myself to groups so I could get out sooner. I barely slept at all while there and walked the hallways one night. Up until that point, Maggie was rejecting all of her meds, but this night she was standing outside of the med station begging the nurse for her meds and sleeping pills. I wasn't able to discern much, but she was asking God to let her son come see her and her hands holding her hands together as if in prayer. 
I started spending more time with her after this, as did some of the other newcomers on the ward. Maggie was a ton of fun once I figured out that it was more important to just try and get the gist of what she was talking about instead of each individual thought and idea. The last day I was on the ward, she'd gotten very agitated for whatever reason, and she was given several shots of Ativan and spent some time in the padded room. When she was let out, she was so fucking stoned but slowed down enough that I could have a real conversation with her. She said she was flying like a kite and got a nicotine patch from the nurse and then sat down with me for lunch and I helped her eat. She told me to make sure I didn't come back there ever again. I gave her a big hug before I left. It was so heartbreaking to hear her talk about her son that never came to visit her and the nurses that were impatient with her. I think about Maggie a lot and have so far kept my promise to her not to go back. Wow. Thank you for that. I love when you guys just paint these, even if they're heartbreaking, the pictures of these human experiences that people have that for many of us are outside our, not only our experience, but our imagination of what something could be like to experience. That may be the most awkward sentence I've ever said. I, I think I need a grammar intervention. I need to sit in a circle of middle school teachers who are gently going to let me know that I suck at grammar. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. As I mention every week, I'm a big fan of it. I've used it for several years. And uh, if you've never tried online counseling, why wouldn't you try it? You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Um, there's a broad range of expertise, which you might not find locally. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is available in all 50 states, and uh, they're Counselors are vetted, uh, and BetterHelp is actually available globally. And you guys can get 10% off your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mental. Uh, and then one more survey before we get to the interview. Uh, this is from the Body Shame survey filled out by Betty. And she writes uh, to the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I'm thinner now than I've been in a long time, but I hate all the fat on my body. If I think about it too much, I can feel it festering and wobbling under my skin. Growing up, my mom and stepdad's weight fluctuated and they always made a huge deal out of it. They went on diets that my brother and I had to be a part of, but more importantly, They were vocal about their fat phobia, especially my mom, constantly telling me the things that they hate about their bodies. No matter what I looked like, my family had something to say about it. When I was in my sophomore year of high school, my mom took me shopping for a homecoming dress. I'd just gotten over mono and was still pretty thin, but I was still very self-conscious about my body. I told her I wanted something to wear that was loose and classy and even found a cute, fairly conservative white dress that was exactly what I wanted and in our budget. She didn't like it, so we went somewhere else. 
We were in a thrift store parking lot, and she was angry that it was taking so long, so I confided in her that I didn't feel good in any of the dresses and was ashamed of my body. She glared at me and snapped, I just don't understand why you think you're fat. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I'm here with Ann Moss Rogers. Uh, you are an author. Um, you sadly lost a son to to suicide. How many years ago was it? It was in 2015. So okay. six, pretty fresh. Yeah, pretty fresh. And you have one vocal cord, so I you do. are you are going to try to preserve it as uh, as as we record. So I'm a public speaker. And I'm also a brain tumor survivor. So, um, and uh, and when they did the radiation, I lost some of my swallows. I can still swallow food. It just takes me forever to eat. And then I only have one vocal cord and I had to have surgery so that you'd be able to hear me now. Otherwise, I'd be whispering. Todd, before we talk about the, the other stuff... Talk about what it's like coming out the other side or even during uh, having a, a brain tumor and looking death in the in the face. Oh, it was it was really scary. Um, you know, the tough part for me wasn't as much being in it because I got a ton of support then. It was after it was sort of over especially the first time I had to kind of go through a second treatment. And it was a benign tumor, but it wreaked a lot of havoc, and it was in a very dangerous place. So it was wrapped around my carotid artery. But I remember after I got home from the hospital. So so what? where was the tumor? It's It was in, it was wrapped around my carotid artery, so in the base of the skull. Oh, okay. And... You've got a lot of cranial nerves there, so mm-hmm. any slight growth can, like, ruin, you know. I mean, had it been left there, it would have just been a slow and agonizing death. Really ugly kind of mm-hmm. ALS kind of mm-hmm. demise. And there was one surgeon in the world who was able to remove it. And that was pretty remarkable because he was only two hours away. So I went through that experience. I come home, and it's like I don't know how to get back into life. It's like I've been dropped into a desert without a compass. And that was agonizing for me. I just I just didn't know where to go with my life. I didn't know what to do. And how long ago was this? This was the first time in 1999 from about 
the middle of 2000. And then I had the radiation in 2017 after my son died. And then for whatever reason, everything was fine. And then six months later, I lost a lot of swallow, a lot had a lot of breathing problems. And um, the vocal cord collapsed. So for about 18 months, all I could do was whisper. So I'd go to social events, and nobody could hear me. I, I just felt so isolated. I really, really struggled. That's when I struggled the most, because I was kind of, I felt antisocial. I would speak up, and no one could hear me. Wow, that had to be so frustrating. It was, and I, it gave me, you know, it just gave me a new perspective on how how it might feel to lose your voice or to be deaf. I mean, I am deaf in one ear, but I do have hearing in the other ear. And the brain tumor took that too. But I'm really lucky. I am really lucky. Were you a person of not necessarily organized religion, but a person of any kind of faith before this, during it, after it? Um I was brought up in the Episcopal Church, but I can't say I'm a real religious person. I'm a spiritual person. Um, I do believe there's something beyond us. Yes, out that's there. That, that's essentially what what I was asking because you know your perspective on this, I think, is something that's so difficult for so many people to not feel a victim of the universe. You know losing your son, losing your vocal cord, you know, struggling to swallow food. I mean, that's that is a lot of really big stuff and I think for a lot of a lot of people it it could make them bitter and and really negative and yeah, you don't strike me as that that kind of a person and I wonder sometimes where where that um, comes from uh, from person to person because I think everybody obviously is a little different in where they where they find their strength and and their ability to um, keep uh, a positive perspective. You know, I think it is. I didn't want to live my life that way. You know, if I live myself bitter and angry every day, what does that benefit? How does that benefit me or anybody else around me? Yeah. Do I really want to live that way? Yeah, there's this saying, uh, having a resentment is like taking the poison and waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. that. So I just, it, it just doesn't benefit me. And in terms of Charles dying by suicide, um, he wouldn't want me to live that way. Yeah. And how old was he? He was 20. Yeah. And he struggled with substance use disorder. Um, and depression. And, you know, there were all these clues, Paul, and I didn't see them. He talked a lot about death starting in middle school. So my son struggled with thoughts of suicide probably since fourth or fifth grade. And because I didn't know the signs, it just wasn't on my radar at all. And I mean, this is the funniest, most popular kid in school. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's not the type, right? Yeah. And when they when they came and told me we found your son Charles dead this morning, and 
my husband said, how did he die? I'm like, what a crazy question that is. Why, why would you ask that? And of course, it's a natural question. And they said suicide, and I was prepared to overdose. And I'm watching my, son, my husband's emotional explosion in the front seat. I can't even let it in. I can't even absorb the fact that I didn't understand why suicide, and it would be a really long time before I would. When did he realize, or did he ever realize that he had an addiction problem? Oh, yeah. He did. Oh, yeah. And When did it rear its head? So he had uh, substance misuse for a long time because he would wake up at night and have thoughts of suicide. And to him, using a drug to numb that instead of killing himself to a teenager makes a lot of sense. Right. And what kind of drugs was he using? So he started off with alcohol and marijuana. And then he really kind of became obsessive about poly substances in general. And we ended up, you know, taking him to a wilderness program, you know, therapeutic boarding school. But when he came back, he just kind of went back to those same habits and eventually kind of graduated to heroin. And he never admitted to me that it was heroin. He said it was Oxycontin. Because, you know, heroin mm. addict, I mean, it kind of drips with shame and ugliness. Yeah. And and who wants who wants their parent or to think of themselves that way? Right. And he felt ugly and low and rejected. And I just I really, really regret not saying to him, as much as I want you to get well, I love you even if you don't. He needed to know that my love was unconditional. I knew when I said it to him, but he needed to hear it just like that. And I never got to say that. So I tell every parent, you need to meet them where they are. You can't do recovery for them. You can't push them into recovery. You need to find help for yourself. And you know what usually they do? They go off and they're still looking for a fix it. I'm going to mm-hmm. fix this. Then they'll come back to me six months later. They'll ask me again. I'm like, did you ever find support and education for yourself? And they'll tell me no. And I'm like, then this conversation is over. Good for you. I mean, the last 30 seconds, you said so many incredibly important and profound things. Truths that people live their whole lives and never grasp, even if somebody is saying it to them, they don't let it in. It's, it is its own addiction, being a fixer. It is. And when I found out there were support groups, and the thing is, I asked mental health professionals, where are the support groups? So we ended up going to Families Anonymous. Best move I ever made in my life. That was my family away from family. And when, for example, my son left the therapeutic boarding school for a few days, you know, I'm leaving, I'm 18, and he walked out of there. We didn't know where he was. That was the group that was there for me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, texting me, how's everything going? 
Uh, NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, also has a family support group. Great organization. Yeah. yeah. And they have a class called Family to Family, and I recommend that a lot. So my mantra is you've got to get support for yourself first. You can't fix another human being, but you can fix how you react to them. So true. So true. Talk about, you know, I, people probably get tired of me ringing the bell for support groups, but it's one of the reasons I started this podcast. They saved my life, and I want to be a cheerleader for people to get help. I didn't start this podcast to be the answer for people. I I started it for them to feel comfort and 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 hope and to try to inspire them to go get help because I I was on the brink of suicide before I finally said I can't do this. Please please help me. And it and it changed my life. Talk about when you're in that support group, paint a picture, if you would, for that experience. You talked about people texting you when, when Charles disappeared. It felt give so me, good. Give me, give me some snapshots, some moments um, in your support group that help paint a picture for a person who's afraid to go to one. So we we were desperate. So I, I was desperately looking for one. And when I found it, I found the location. I reached out to the person, the email. She said, we'd love to have you. I walked in, and I think, Paul, I expected to see a certain type of person. But what I saw was lots of people like me. And they were from all kinds of financial backgrounds. There's a guy in there who drove a Maserati, and there was a guy who drove a Toyota Tercel. So it it ran across, and they were so welcoming. There were men and women, and the very first session, no women cried, two men did when they told the story of their their children and the substance use disorder and the helplessness that they felt. What did you feel in that moment when? (sighs) Felt, wow, for men to feel in a safe space enough that they would cry, this is the place for me. I didn't know how my husband felt. Really, I mean, we talked about it, but it was because he went to this support group with me that I learned how he felt because he would say it to the group. And that really helped us get on the same page because when you have a child with substance use disorder or mental health issue or both or whatever, you got kind of the bad parent, the good parent, and it is across the board. So you have one parent that's kind of strict who's like, throw them out of the house, and the other parent is, you know, I can never do that. And you tend to kind of take on those roles, but you got to get united on the same page, and it was that group that did it. So what were the differences in how you two felt and approached? So neither one of us, like, were throwing them out of the house, but there is that tough love myth, Mm -hmm. and... I was kind of like, well, we've tried everything else. Maybe we should go to tough love. But the trouble is that has no definition, mm-hmm. really. And, you know, there are just some people. 
and he was kind of more, this is a tough one. He was the more gentle one, I guess. And I was kind of the more autocratic one. Mm-hmm. But what I learned was nothing I could do could fix this. And I mm-hmm. learned that the very first time I visited. I and, was, and that was news to you. Yeah, I was hooked. The the other thing that I, I want to clarify, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but, you know, when it's suggested to the parent or the loved one of the person who refuses to get help or get sober, uh, that they give this person consequences, be it kicking them out, you know, taking a break from your relationship with them, what, whatever it is, it's not because you're making a moral judgment on what that person is doing. It's because you are enabling them. You are keeping them from feeling the full brunt of their decisions in their addiction. Yeah, there's part of that, but there's also, what are your boundaries? And at first we had all these boundaries, like three pages. Really, you just need like three. <laughs> talk about talk, talk about those. So ours were... Um, you can't actively use it in our house. And the problem was, is that when he was actively using, he'd set off alarms, he'd let creepy people in the house. I mean, I'm having people knock on my bedroom door at 2am. I don't know who they are. And I'm totally freaked out. And then the next day, he's telling me, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm, I'm afraid in my own house. And I just said, I, I can't take that. So we never threw him out. What happened was he went to detox and he walked out of there the second Be, Before time. he wasn't released. He, right. So he went to detox. He went to rehab. He went to recovery house. And he relapsed the first day in the recovery house. They took him back to detox. He walked out of detox. And we said... You can't come back and live with us right now. We love you. We can meet you for lunch. We can buy you groceries. But you can't live with us right now because we don't know how to manage this. Mm -hmm. And we were moving. So there wasn't anywhere for him to live because for 10 weeks we didn't have a house and we went from one Airbnb to another. And another thing was I'm not giving you money. I will pay or help you pay for the recovery house. I will help you pay for food. I'll meet you for lunch, but I'm not going to give you money. And we kept that rule with when we supported other people who had substance use disorder. I'll buy you a bus ticket. Mm -hmm. I will take you somewhere. I will meet you somewhere. I will talk to you on the phone. I will help you somehow in recovery, but I can't give you money. You know, that's, that's just my boundary. And it's so important. Right. It's so important. People think that that's love and it's really, it's, it's, it's not giving that person money. It's, it's not love. It's gasoline to the fire. Right. I mean, there's, it was just really hard to accept and watch somebody self-destruct before my very eyes. I know the steps that need to be taken, but I can't make them do it. It is 
it's like watching somebody stand on the train tracks as the train approaches. Exactly. And, and they're like, no, I'm good. And I watched that for five years. You know, for five years, our, our lives were complete chaos. But it was once I went in that support group, one time, Paul, one time, I got that message right away. I learned more in that one and a half hours than I learned in years. And then I... What do, you, what do you think about it that it sunk in? Was it that you were so miserable that you were teachable or something about it rang true or was it the vibe in there that... that they were went? all normal people. They were just like me. Their children grew up in a house of love. You know, they didn't do anything to their kids to make them that way. And they had all these stories of trying this and then they'd laugh about it. And I mean, some of those people had been in that group for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm happy to report that most people in that group that were in there long term, their their loved ones have had a successful recovery which is wonderful. I mean, it didn't turn out for our family, but it it greatly increases your odds if you go and join a support group. And it's free. Yeah. It is free. And it is such an act of courage and it's a gift to others because what you have found works or didn't work or your story helps another human being, and the people in that group want to support you. So you're helping them heal by being that new person that needs support when they're really hurting. Mm -hmm. So it's just this beautiful give and take. It it really really is. You know, it, it had never occurred to me that me asking for help gave somebody else an opportunity to help me and feel good about themselves exactly, and help them to stay sober. Right. And, and that is the whole beauty of peer recovery. And I, I just can't say enough about that. And like I said, first thing I tell parents and they want a magic formula. You know, and, and they want to throw money at it. A lot right. of people, especially upper income people, they what's the most expensive rehab I can send you and know, the most my loved ex- one to? Yeah. Those are usually the most coddling and the the most ineffective. The best one that we have in our area is Caritas, which is the healing place. And they take in the poorest people in our area mm-hmm. and they all live in dormitories and they live there for a year and they have one of the best you know, recovery rates in the country. There's a place out here in Los Angeles called Cry Help that's really good. And they they don't take shit from addicts. You know, you take away an addict's safety blanket and you've got an angry child. You do. And then you give them rules. Well, a lot of them are going to be like, fuck you. I'm out of here. Yeah. They don't have any way in their mind to cope other than drugs, but the ones that can hang on through it. You know, I often say to them, if you can follow the rules in this rehab for six months, that's the, those are good training wheels for life once you get outside of this. But if you can't handle the rules inside yeah. a rehab, 
you're fucked yeah. once you get out of here. That's true. And, you know, he was a model kid in rehab. I mean, I hear stories out years later of somebody saying, you know, I was depressed. I got under the covers and it was Charles that said, you know, come on, I'm going to group. I want you to go with me. And he would, you know, share his rap music lyrics with those groups. And when I read those lyrics after he died, that was when I realized that my son had a lot more insight to his condition than I ever realized. I mean, I thought he didn't know that it was lethal. He didn't know that. And he did. I mean, the the amount of self-awareness that he actually had was incredible. And that speaks to the power of the illness. Yeah. How powerful it is that it, it defies logic and you still listen to it. Right. But, you know, Paul, I lost. But really, recovery is not only possible, it's probable. And making that first step is just a step of courage. And everybody kind of acts like it's a step of weakness. But you're going to a place to tell your deepest, darkest feelings. brave. It yeah, is brave. Absolutely takes a lot of courage to do that. You know, I always say if if you were a general and your army was getting its ass kicked, would it mean you were a great general because you didn't call for reinforcements? No, it means you are a shitty general. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I do that now. You know, I have I still have some tough days. I get around that birthday, I have a big birthday party, and I invite all his old friends, and here we are, 15 of us outside having a great time, and that helps me get through that day, and we're doing it together, so I'm calling in reinforcements, and I'll be honest with you, when I reached out this year, oh, nobody will want to come, and I went through all that, and I'm like, oh, screw it, Ann Moss, that's ridiculous, just ask just ask just ask and i did and they were overjoyed to come they just loved it we had such a great time and i'm like when i get those thoughts i just have to acknowledge them and i'm like okay i give it a minute and then i go through the whole scenario and i'm like all right cut it out now you need to move forward yeah you talked earlier about meeting regretting that you feel like you didn't meet Charles where he was at. And one of the things that you've done uh, since he took his life is you've written a book. You're a teacher, and you've written a book about how teachers can recognize signs that I guess you, you, you said that you didn't see. Yeah, so the first book I wrote was Diary of a Broken Mind, which is a memoir. I was actually owned a digital marketing company, and then, but I've always done a lot of training and a lot of public speaking. And then I wrote this memoir and I included the lyrics because he was a creative genius. These lyrics are amazing. And so every other chapter are his lyrics because I want the audience to see our family story from my point of view and his. 
And there are times where you can see where I was blatantly wrong as a parent, but that's okay. That's, are you are you comfortable sharing any of those? Well, yeah. Um, I think that the main one was that I kept kind of pushing the recovery and kind of holding, well, if you're in recovery, I'll do this, which he felt like was I was withholding my love until mm -hmm. he got into recovery. And of course, that's not true. But the way I said it, I'm really positive he interpreted it that way. And I do think it contributed to his feelings of worthlessness. I'm not blaming myself. I've gone through all that because I spent a couple of years. It had to be so hard. Torturing myself. It was all my fault. And then once I kind of pulled back the lens and I said, you know, I'm just putting a microscope on 5% of the crap I did wrong. I mean, there's no manual for this, right? I mean, nobody has any real great answers. And I just did the best I could with what I had. And my child grew up in a house of love, and we adored him. He loved us. And this didn't happen because I was a lousy parent. It happened because my son struggled, and I I can't control what another human being does to themselves. And who knows how many times he would have attempted suicide, and I didn't know about it, or I thwarted a potential you know, suicide. I may have. I'll never know. Talk about the the signs that you you wrote in your second book. So um, the the second book is called uh, "Emotionally Naked: A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk." And what I want really teachers to do so. Part of that, maybe say 10% would be mental health and suicide prevention education. 90% is really helping kids build coping strategies and also helping them um, with connection and belonging to feel part of a greater group. And there are just so many wonderful strategies that teachers can incorporate into their teaching that would still deliver the lesson plan at the same time, you know, also embedding those coping strategies in into the curriculum. But some of the signs that the kids will have are you know, they're the frequent flyers in the nurses' clinic. Um, they're the ones that write a paper about being depressed or, you know, feeling fat. You know, that can indicate eating disorder. They'll doodle things on folders. So uh, they're the ones falling asleep in class. You get kind of a gut feeling that something's not right with this child. And you have some kind of, you know, teachers have kind of baseline for, okay, this kid was an A student and now he's a C student falling asleep. Something gravely wrong is happening in this child's life. I do not want teachers to become therapists. I just want them to spot, you know, to know what is a potential risk and what are those next steps they should take. And one of those is if they can, they can, can they have that conversation with a the child? 
and then connect them with the school counselor or walk them there. <clears throat> Bring the counselor to the room. In other words, you don't send the kid with a piece of paper, right. you know, out of your sight if they're struggling right then. Because we're losing a lot of college students and a lot of high school and middle school students and even some elementary students. And when they called me to write this book, Paul, I remember feeling really overwhelmed, like I'm not a teacher. Why me? And then it was like, you know what? Why not me? I mean, I've got years of data from both YouTube and my search engine optimization. Um, so what I do is I write a lot of posts so that people find them on Google when they're struggling. And I'm really good at that. And they'll put a comment and somebody answers it. And I'll have them come, they'll come back two, three years later and go, thank you for answering that comment because that's all I needed. And things aren't great right now, but they're a lot better. And I, I feel more positive connecting and in a caring way, online, in person, it really means so much to another human being. It really does. Uh, we had a guy named Kevin Briggs on as a guest years ago, and he was uh, a California Highway Patrolman. And one of his uh, routes was the Golden Gate Bridge. And oh, wow. so he encountered a lot of people um, as they were contemplating suicide. And he said every single person that he had a conversation with said that they felt like a burden. Yeah, that's a big one. Felt like a burden. Another common theme or common thread is I look in the mirror and I just feel so worthless. Kind of a metaphor, mm -hmm. giving away possessions. I don't want to be here anymore. But really, it's that gut feeling you get that when somebody says something, it just gives you that feeling that something isn't right. And what some of us do out of fear is like, I want to run for the exits or I want to ask, you know, how are you doing? And I want to hear I'm OK because we're, we feel like we can't handle. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. We can and I want people to push through that feeling of like, yes, I can listen to another human being. And yes, I can say, I don't know what the next steps are, but let's text the crisis text line together at 741741 and let's see what those next steps might be. Let's call the local hotline together and figure out, and I'll do that with you. I'll help you make a therapist appointment. Right. I'll go to your support group meeting. Right. With Can you. we do a suicide assessment over the phone? Uh, and, you know, I can't do that for you, but let's make that phone call. The other thing that Kevin said was when he first started encountering people who were standing on the ledge was he talked at them and he slowly began to learn that what really helped was to get them to talk and to yeah. just listen. Just listen. In fact, I have a T-shirt that says stop suicide with your ears. And it's got different ears, you know, little vector illustrations. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, it's a hashtag, just listen. 
people have no idea the importance of listening is listening without fixing. Yeah. It's yeah. so hard sometimes. It is so hard. I still am tempted. And a couple of times when I've made that error, I just say, oh, gosh, I can't believe I said that. I'm so sorry. I'm going to shut up now. I want you to tell me more and just ignore that stupid comment I made. So you can say the wrong thing, and then you can backpedal and go, no, no, that was really dumb, and I invalidated your feelings, and please accept my apology. Anything else that you'd, uh, you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, but I really appreciate your having me and kind of presenting the other side of how it feels to be the, the parent of a child who's struggling and that I think that families need to be educated and I think families need to shift and learn to accommodate the person in their family that is struggling instead of saying things like, you got to get out of bed or pull yourself by your bootstraps. They have to learn what depression really is. Uh, If people want to know more about you or contact you or find you on social media, where can they do that or buy your books? Um, My books are on my website, EmotionallyNaked.com or AnnMossRogers.com. And Diary of a Broken Mind is the memoir and Emotionally Naked, a teacher's guide to preventing suicide and recognizing students at risk. (gasps) It's a long title. Um, That one's available worldwide. So I've gotten emails from Singapore and Hong Kong and Alaska and Utah and Arizona and just all over the world with that second one especially. That's so awesome. And thanks for coming by. Well, thank you for having me, Paul. Ah, Love talking to her. Uh, we'll put the links to all her stuff under our, uh, our show notes. Let's dive into some surveys. This is uh, the body shame survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Spencer. And what do you like or dislike about your body and why? He writes, I like that my body supports my mind, that it helps me take care of myself, that it is strong, that it is resilient. My body has been there through all of my days, good and bad, and it will love me unconditionally as best as it can. I dislike that my body has so much fat on it. I dislike that my brain requires so much stimulus, in the parentheses ADHD, and puts me in pain for no reason, migraines, cluster headaches. I dislike that my dick is nothing that anybody will ever fawn over. Sure, it's about the motion of the ocean, but I want the boat to be admired on its own. I dislike my skin for having acne at age 24 in some pretty awkward places. Lately, it looks like I have herpes, but it's actually pimples. Thank you for sharing that, Spencer. And what is it about us guys that we just are so hung up on our dicks? <laughs> there must be some evolutionary purpose to to that, but, you know. I think humanity has had enough of uh, guys thinking about their dicks all their all the time. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by uh, that black girl. And uh, she writes, I'm so sorry to hear that you have a tremor in your fretting hand that may affect you playing guitar. How long have you played guitar? Uh, I have played since I was 14. Uh, what were the circumstances of you learning? Um 
my mom suggested that my brother and I take guitar lessons, and I'm very, very grateful uh, that that she did that. And I stuck with it, uh, probably because some of my friends were also learning guitar at the same time. And also, I, that was kind of the age where all of my friends were, uh, most of my friends had hit puberty, and they were still able to be competitive in sports, and I was so small, I wasn't really able to, and so I just kind of, uh, you know, went to smoke smoke a lot of weed and uh, listen to a lot of heavy metal and, and play guitar too loud. Uh, do you feel that your playing has helped or hurt you in life? Oh, it has definitely, definitely helped me in life. There, There is, there's actually a song that uh, I wrote, I guess. It feels weird to use the word wrote because I I can't read music. I know very little theory. Um, I can't sing, but uh, I, I play by ear. And um, so I came up with this chord progression that I that I really like. And maybe I'll I'll share it with you guys because I think it's it, it sounds really cool. Um, if you Oh, I, there was a tag on to the question, do you feel it's uh, helped you or hurt you in your life? Help by giving you something other than despair to think about, hurt by serving as distraction from your problems. I think definitely more, as I said, uh, it, it, it being a help, but what I started to say and totally got off track was there's a an emotional muscle in my brain that I can only express through playing music. I can't find words for it, um, and of course, it's rarely filled with joy. It's usually something kind of melancholy. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll share I'll share that thing with you that I've been I've been working on. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself your typical spoiled millennial brat. Uh, she has never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused by her mom. Uh, any positive experiences with the abuser? Uh, we had some nice moments for sure, but even though they were nice, I can never really remember feeling completely relaxed and safe. I was, I was always on guard for the next humiliation or outburst, but she was my mom and I still loved her. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes wish my mom died when I was young. I fantasize about how everything would have turned out if I had gotten a new, loving family as a child. For as long as I can remember, I have daydreamed about having a loving mom, one that would take care of me. Long, detailed daydreams that would play out in my head. I am, of course, happy that I still have my mom around, but the thought still pops up now and then. I often think about killing myself in horrible ways, like pouring gasoline all over myself and setting myself on fire or ways to decapitate myself. I also imagine myself cutting myself deep all over my arms and thighs and how satisfying that would feel. Abuse my body so bad. Uh, I'd have to get hundreds of stitches. Sometimes I seriously wish I could just do it. It's a good thing I'm an escort. Hundreds of stitches would be bad for business. Darkest secrets. I cut and I work as an escort. Those two don't go together well. I've had to come up with many, quote, elbow ligament injure stories, unquote, to cover up my cuts with an elastic bandage. 
I've abused Xanax, sleeping pills, and alcohol, but managed to stop before I completely lost control because it negatively affected the only thing that can give me joy, my sport. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have so much sex because of the escorting. I honestly just want to lie in bed, not have sex, and be held and cared for. Someone saying that they love and mean it and tell me that everything will be okay. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my therapist everything I want to. I try every time I see him, but I just don't trust him enough or know how to express my feelings. Fuck, most of the time, I don't even know what I feel. I just know that it sucks. I would tell my mom she hurt me. It seems so simple, but there is no way I would be able to tell her that now. What, if anything, do you wish for? The ability to talk to my therapist. There's no nothing wrong with him. This is how it always is, and changing therapists would not make it easier for me. Learning how to express my feelings, learning how to express what I feel, trust my therapist enough to open up. I hate that I have these issues with talking and opening up, and it needs to change in order for me to benefit from therapy. I just don't know how to do that. Well, you know, I I had a thought, um, and I very much relate to the part of not even knowing what I'm feeling, Um, and there is... I'm, not, I'm sure you could Google it and find it on the internet, but a list of feelings. And you might bring print that out and bring that into your therapist's office and go down the list and say whether or not that's something that you ever experience or something that you're experiencing right now. And that might be a good launching off point to get the ball rolling because that's in my opinion, that's where a lot of it starts, the the, the really fruitful digging is what are we feeling? And then we can get to the why and what the tools are we can use to to cope with it. Have you shared these things with others? LOL, no. It's the core of my problems. I could be standing in the middle of a lake filled with alligators with a sword through my chest and be like, I'm fine, my chest hurts a little, but no worries, everything's cool. I'm too worried about being a bother. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind of relieved, but also tired, because it's really late where I'm at. I always find a way to procrastinate going to sleep. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, do not become an escort. Thank you for sharing that, and I really... uh, I really hope that you you can get to the point where you can... You can begin to open up. It's it's hard, man. It is hard in the beginning, but it does get easier. There is a momentum to recovery. <clears throat> this is from the love survey filled out by Maddie Kay, and she writes, I love when I catch my longtime boyfriend smiling at me for seemingly no reason because I know he feels the same way I do, incredibly lucky and in love. I love finishing a meal kit and looking at the fancy, healthy food I will nourish my body with. I love when I encounter an overly affectionate cat wandering around at night. That is an awesome one. It, 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 I don't know how often I've ever been able to get a stray cat to come up to me and let me pet it. They're usually so skittish. To be fair, I'm always pointing a shotgun at them, but that's, that's beside the point. Uh, I love when I encounter, oh, she did that. I did that one. I love slipping into fresh bedding for the night especially if you do it right after you take a shower. That's a great one. 
and I love the feeling after a fresh haircut. Amen. Amen. Thank you for those. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Caged Bird Screams. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, and was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My half-brother took me across the road from his house. He said he was going to show me something. His truck was parked in the driveway of this abandoned house. He grabbed my chest, pushed me against his truck, and forced his tongue down my throat. I could tell he had just smoked a cigarette. In shock, I just stared at him. His eyes were wild and appeared as if they were trying to escape him. The sickest part? I went in for another kiss. I have no idea why I ever did that. Years later, I laughed about it. Laughed. Today, I am disgusted. I can't think about that time. When I was a child, I had actually prayed that I would get closer to my half-brother since my full brother was always jealous of me and would hurt me if he got the chance. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused, especially by her first husband. <clears throat> she writes, I am stuck in an emotionally abusive relationship that is uh, creeped up on turning physical. Yeah, this is the life I have. Two daughters that I love more than anything, but my now husband, who doesn't think he has a problem, is into odd sexual kinks that I'm not used to. He wants me to lock him up in a chastity device and humiliate him all while another man comes in him from behind. Yet, he brings me down in front of my kids, question mark. I don't understand. I've become so awkward with sex now, I'm not even sure if I want it anymore. He begs for threesomes with other men, where he sits and watches them come inside me. Then he licks it off me while they come in him again. I'm sure this is probably a thing, but I'm just too vanilla to understand. I just wanted that simple relationship where we make love, not have sex. To those who said it gets better, you are some messed up individuals if you think this is better. Uh, I mean, this is, this, this is such a great example of the, the truth that the best sex springs out of a foundation of friendship and intimacy and trust and then it doesn't it matters so much less what the kink is because you trust each other and you feel safe with each other but man how can you have intimate sex even if it's it's kinky sex involving other people how can you have that when when that person is shaming you and you don't feel safe around them any positive experiences with the abusers as far as my half-brother no I've seen him abuse his first wife, now tragically deceased, just to treat this new woman like a freaking queen. Just proves my theory that a man can treat you like dirt, but your replacement like gold. With my husband, I have my daughters. He helped in that, so I guess I will say that. Wow, I don't really have anything that positive. Bummer. Darkest thoughts. I think about ways to send my husband to jail so that I'm away from him. No more walking on eggshells. It will just be my daughters and I living in paradise. He even acts like a bully to my babies. I don't really think I love him, but I don't make him leave either. Darkest Secrets 
I don't just think that I don't love my husband. I truly believe I don't love him. After all I've been through, seeing how he acts around our sweet little girls, I just can't. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My fantasy is simple. I just want to be wrapped around a protective man that will take me away from all of this chaos. Soft, gentle love, that's it. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my husband, the day you confessed to me that you wanted to be a woman, I'm sorry I reacted the way I did. I accept you, as I can accept anyone, but it isn't exactly what I signed up for. I know that makes me a horrible person. I am truly sorry. What, if anything, do you wish for? To have normalcy in my life for once. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I'm so ashamed to even speak about this to anyone. I always lie and make things seem better and stable. If people knew the truth, they would wonder why I don't do something about it. To be honest, I don't know why I don't either. It's almost like I'm just trapped, mostly ignoring it. It's just all too much for me to cope with. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better, but still worried. It's anxiety and it will never stop. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I know why you do the things you do. React how you react and stay silent. It's painful. It's crazy. And it's our life. Let's hang in there and see if it gets better. Shall we? Question mark. Thank you for that. I imagine that there are a lot of people whose whose circumstances might differ from from yours, but still feel trapped in a marriage or a relationship nonetheless, and they don't know how to take that first step to either try to make the relationship work or to leave it. And it's such a lonely place. But thank you for sharing all that. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by a woman who calls herself Night Ash. And she writes um, to the question, why were you hospitalized? I'd been engaging in EMDR therapy. In hindsight, I don't think we were going about it the right way. And I became overwhelmed. A lot of different factors were contributing, though. I had bombed out of college the semester before. My dad's creepy friend was visiting and stays in our house. And I became so overwhelmed by the trauma symptoms that I snapped. I had created a plan to kill myself by drinking and taking pills, which seems ridiculous to me now because I had never done either, let alone together, with the purpose of suicide. But I had a tendency to bottle it up and push it down until I explode. I had a breakdown with my therapist but managed to keep my secret. She sent me to the doctor for medication, which I ended up spilling too. Describe your experience. They ended up giving me a police escort across the small town doctor's office to the hospital in the same plaza. I called my mother and sister and they came to give me their support. I was stripped of my clothes but given a plastic gown that exposed more than I was comfortable with while a security guard sat watching me from across the hall. The hospital wasn't equipped to keep me for observation and ended up sending me to another hospital via ambulance. I was strapped to a gurney and shipped to the next town. God, that is so fucked up. From there, I was asked by several different people about my plan to kill myself. I sat in the hallway on my gurney and person after person came up, asked me about my planning to kill myself, left, and a new person came back later. This kept going until I stopped answering questions and they sent someone in for a psych evaluation. 
I stayed in a room with no windows and no bathroom for three days. I had no access to a shower, and all of my food came in from the hospital, each with a receipt. I was not allowed to have utensils or a straw. I slept on and off for three days with nothing to do except take visits from my family. To their credit, a nurse had offered me a room with a TV, but was just uh, shutting down so much. On the first day I was there, my parents and sister showed hours after I arrived. My father refused to speak to me until my mother prompted him, and then he spoke. His first words were, Do you really think all of this was necessary? Wow. Wow. That is so fucked up. After the three days, I moved up into the unit. It was bittersweet. I was humbled and horrified by my experience. The patients would have outbursts and re-traumatize each other all the time. A lot of the time, the unit would get shut down because of fighting and visitors would be barred until it was over. But I was also amazed by the people there. I saw people trying to pull themselves together and create a good future, looking for housing and jobs in the local papers. I also had the privilege of rooming with a woman who was roughly my mother's age. I connected with her and was able to share stories for, uh, with her for the first time. I felt like I was really able to share my story without being afraid or judged. It was so, I was so incredibly relieved to finally be heard. When I told her of my father's friend, she shared my disgust and I felt validated. It was real and it was significant. The hospital staff asked about me pressing charges. I didn't feel like I could do it, and I don't believe I ever will. But to share my story and receive that kind of support told me that my experiences were valid. I am worthy of love and respect, and this experience was significant. It was horrible and beautiful at the same time. I was able to accept what had happened to me and connect with others who also struggle, but at the same time I felt so helpless trapped in a strange place where the screaming and fighting was daily, hitting my triggers in a place where I had no locks and no way out. I recognize it as a necessary evil, and this led to me moving up and protecting myself. I left home and took care of myself, and my life has been better ever since. Wow. Wow. High fucking five. So awesome. So bittersweet. And then finally, these are some loves from uh, Katie. She writes, I love my morning hikes around a small lake near my house. I love being the first one out on the trail and knowing I'm the first because of all the spider webs I run into. I love spotting a heron or egret or eagle that I would never imagine were just a mile from my house if I didn't walk around the lake. I love the mist on the lake in the early mornings and the light reflection of the water on the tree leaves. Even though I'm depressed, I love that I have this beautiful natural area five minutes from my house, and then I'm still able to appreciate the beauty and wonder of nature. Thank you. Thank you. There is nothing like nature to just fucking take the edge off. It's so amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you all for, for your surveys that uh, I'm just always so moved and amazed and um, 
I, f- I feel like it helps me uh, not only grow as a person, but um, to be more compassionate uh, to, to people who I might otherwise not judge, but um, not have patience for. And uh, I hope if, if this podcast achieves anything, it's that uh, it can help people be, be more compassionate and inspire them to, to get help if, uh, if they need it or want it anyway. I hope you got something out of it and uh, never forget that you are not alone and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.